Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. We talk a lot about uh, franchise reboots and nostalgic brand resuscitations on this show. And I was excited this week when I saw that my all-time favorite brand is getting revived for the 21st century. Yes, I'm talking about Screw Magazine. That is the New York-based alt-weekly that ran from 1969 to 2003. It was a sort of a consumer reports for sex at a time when, well, there, there was no internet. There had, never, there had never been a magazine quite like it. And it was run by a garrulous and vulgar publisher by the name of Al Goldstein. Donald, enough already. I am sick of your fucking picture. I'm sick of your book. And what really has uh, uh, fused together to make me pissed off is I spent an afternoon at uh, Trump Trump Castle, that's right. I saw all those ads. I thought it'd be great. Your room service stinks. I had locks and eggs for eight ninety five. It was second rate. Donald Trump, I'm sick of you and everything you stand for. And like a lot of things in the early 21st century, it was rendered totally outmoded by the internet. Goldstein himself plowed through his personal fortune, ended up homeless on the street. Uh, Penn Gillette, no less, saved him from a life of destitution. Friend of the show, Penn Gillette. My, my intellectual role model. Living the libertarian lifestyle by using his own personal money to save Al Goldstein from destitution. You know, Screw, as a magazine, it was the first magazine to sort of combine uh, sex and a very vulgar kind of politics. You know, Larry Flint more or less stole the format for Hustler magazine. And, you know, it's a subject that I've been personally fascinated by for a long time. And along came this group, apparently based in Miami, uh, the the Autolitano Media Group, which is run by this this guy called Phil Autolitano, who kind of fancies himself a new Al Goldstein. His Facebook picture is him giving a middle finger. And this is part of a broad revival of the Screw brand. There's a Roku channel. It's going to be an online magazine with special print publication. And it's funny to me because, you know, much as I love seeing a valuable and venerable brand get the respect <laughs> that it deserves, that brand to me is so closely tied to the late Mr. Goldstein, who in his later years would essentially use it as a soapbox for his own petty grievances, you know, complaining about family members and about luggage companies that made bad and flimsy luggage or... So th- this is like before you could add a brand on Twitter, you just start your own channel on on public access TV and, and, and whinge constantly? Yeah, and you know, Goldstein was somebody who in his early years actually fought a lot of First Amendment court cases, established some significant precedents. But, you know, his battles were won by around 1980. So in later years, it was just him venting spleen and the pages of the magazine... What is this magazine if it's not just the vanity press of this one particular man? And whatever functions it served are clearly served now by the internet. So I have very mixed feelings. I think it's just another case of 
a franchise being rebooted like the Lone Ranger, you know, something <laughs> outside of its time that that just gets carried on in a, in a zombified fashion. You should uh, you should do like an all caps tweet asking people to stop appropriating screw culture. <laughs> yeah. Unless we can dig Goldstein up and jolt some electricity into his uh, rotting corpse, uh, I just don't see how it can recapture that special magic that was that was Screw. Well, I'm not as familiar with the history as you. I really only know about this uh, because uh, my podcast co-host is is one of the uh, greatest living scholars of the of the franchise, but. This sounds doomed to fail uh, for the same reason that a lot of reboots don't succeed, which is just for the the simple reason that a lot of cultural products are rooted in a particular place and time, and they're resonant, you know, for that reason, and they have a shelf life. And if you go back to them later, uh, it's only to revisit uh, that place and time, that context that produced them. And a lot of reboots, they'll try to take the original product and make it sort of contemporary uh, in a way that you know, I, d- I don't think really, uh, really ever works, you know, unless you're the type of fan who's just like, oh, serve me the schlock, I'll, I'll lap it all up, I don't care. You know, I feel this way about the, uh, like the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. I think we talked about this with, with our guest on the last episode. You know, there's the one with Bennett, I haven't even seen them all, but there's one with Benedict Cumberbatch where he's playing Khan, you know, the famous villain from the second Star Trek movie, except it's not really the same character at all. The film even has some of the same lines from the original movie, you know, some of the kind of iconic lines, but then... Right, exactly. But then, you know, they're just in a completely different context. And the and the thing doesn't look like Star Trek at all, either. It just looks like, you know, it looks like a Marvel movie or something. Um, and yeah, so it just fundamentally doesn't work. And I suspect that same fate will do the, uh, the screw reboot. You know, what's funny about another long lasting brand, The Simpsons. It's never been off TV. So that process of losing its particular time and place has happened over time. So now when people watch The Simpsons, they see Krusty the Clown, who is an archetype of like a 1950s Jerry Lewis type Rat Pack entertainer that would have been out of date by the time the original Boomer writers wrote it in the 90s. That is now a memory of a memory of a memory. Of course, if they watch The Simpsons today, they'll also see, you know, Marge denouncing Donald Trump and standing up for Kamala Harris <laughs> because we because we live in hell. I guess just lastly on on the subject of Screw Magazine, you have a pretty incredible Al Goldstein story. Maybe we can uh, save that for the end if people want to stick around. If that doesn't make you want to listen to the whole episode, uh, hear, hearing Will's Al Goldstein story, I don't know what will. I usually don't get into politics, but the president's senior advisor, Jenna Ellis, just said Kamala Harris sounds like me. As an ordinary suburban housewife, I'm starting to feel a little disrespected. I teach my children not to name call Jenna. Well, it is September 24th, so I guess we'd be uh, remiss to not uh, discuss the state of things politically. Not that this segment is much fun these days. You know, it was a lot more fun back in January, February, March, where there was a, uh, you know, a Bernie Sanders primary or caucus victory to gloat about. Things feel very different now. You know, I had briefly hoped with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that maybe if just for a moment, the leaders of the Democratic Party would discover some kind of a spine. You know, when you think about how large she's loomed in the liberal political imagination for the past few years, especially, you know, when I heard that she died, I thought, 
maybe we're going to see some stuff that's a little bit out of character from the sort of hashtag resistance liberalism we've seen for the past few years. Uh, but uh, but nope. Even faced with this existential threat of a you know perpetual right-wing hegemony on the U.S. Supreme Court, there is no indication that Democrats are going to just shut down the government, which is absolutely what they should do, not just for their own political survival, but in defense of all of the things that liberalism even in its incredibly compromised form today, insists uh, are important. Why wouldn't they shut down the government? The most cynical reading of the situation would be that they don't really care about their own political interests. I mean, the mo- the simplest political explanation is just pure fecklessness and spinelessness and just an aversion to conflict, which extends to refraining from actual resistance even when faced with a completely existential threat. I suppose another cynical reading of it that I've seen some people have is that senior Democratic leaders, you know, really are not all that invested in doing a lot even when they have power. And so losing control of the court for the next several generations will be the kind of ultimate excuse for why they can't do anything. It's not an existential threat to them, is it? And if anything, it's something that can be used forever as kind of a, well, this is what happens when you vote for Jill Stein. Yeah, uh, Nancy Pelosi made two different remarks this morning that I think very much sum up the state of things right now. But uh, for me, kind of the state of liberalism as we've come to know it during the Trump era and also in the lead up to Trump's election. So uh, these are taken from Natalie Andrews, her Twitter. Uh, She's a reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So the first is Pelosi reacting to Trump's remarks about a peaceful transition of power or perhaps the lack thereof. Pelosi said, uh, you are not in North Korea, you are not in Turkey, you are in the United States of America. It is a democracy, so why don't you just try for a moment to honor your oath of office to the Constitution of the United States? So that's the first remark. This is the second. Pelosi dismisses calls from some on the left that she should shut down the government to try to stall a Supreme Court confirmation saying public employees need jobs now more than ever. And Pelosi says, we're going to shut them down? I don't think so. So what I find so revealing about this is it illustrates the tremendous gulf between a lot of liberal rhetoric in the Trump era and the kinds of things that liberals who wield power are actually willing to do. So even before Donald Trump was elected, plenty of liberals were saying, like, it will be the Fourth Reich in America if Donald Trump wins. We will be living in, in a completely unprecedented times. So you think you've known Republican administrations before? This is going to be the worst Republican administration ever on steroids. It's going to completely destroy the country, hollow out our democracy for generations to come. It will be a cataclysm unlike anything we've ever seen before. But on the other hand, I mean, saying that really necessitates behavior that is proportionate to the threat as it's been stated. And as with so many things, you know, climate change, the Republican Party, whatever else, people like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Gavin Newsom, Barack Obama will use this language of there being an existential threat. And pretty much the furthest they'll go is they'll say, like, vote like your life depends on it. We saw this a few weeks ago with the wildfires in California where, you know, Gavin Newsom got a whole bunch of headlines saying, like, I've got no patience for climate change deniers. Like, you know, y'all need to y'all need to sit down. And, you know, this guy is the governor, presides over one of the world's largest economies. I'm forgetting which environmental reporter, it might have been Katie Aronoff, pointing out that Newsom has approved something like 40 new fracking permits just like in the last, last six or seven months. One of the defining characteristics of the Trump era has been this constant aura of there being an existential threat. 
it's all around us, we're told, you know, but then that is paired with the worst kind of political fecklessness, refusal to embrace conflict, refusal to embrace any kind of radical action or agenda that's actually proportionate to the scale of the problem as liberals themselves describe it. I thought it was very funny in 2016, the day after Donald Trump won, if you go back and read the editorial that Jacobin's editorial board put out, it is so much more measured and level-headed than any of the stuff you would have read from, you know, similar liberal media at the time. I think that is one of the very, you know, I don't know, revealing ironies of the Trump era, that it's usually people on the left who are level-headed and practical about the situation at hand, even as it's liberals who are engaging in kind of the shrillest rhetoric about how bad everything is. Well, if Democrats shut down the government, then Republicans will shut it down on them next time. Check and mate. Yeah, I mean, instead of uh, shutting down the government, you know, they're trying to own like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and, you know, Ted Cruz with old quotes from 2016 about how, you know, you shouldn't uh, shouldn't appoint a Supreme Court justice in an election year, you know, as if they care. I don't know, in the same way that it felt just very fleetingly a few days ago that liberals might discover some kind of a spine after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, I think back to 2016 when I thought, well, the levy's now broken. You know, the mask is off. The emperor has no clothes. The Hillary campaign failed. Surely something's got to give now. It can't go on like this. The culture of liberalism will change fundamentally because in some ways the 2016 election was a referendum on all of its kind of core sensibilities. And yet that hasn't happened at all. I remember like a week or two after thinking that, or maybe just a few days uh, after the election, seeing a viral uh, Twitter post that was like a guy with a long beard, like dressed like Dumbledore. And he was holding a sign that said, now's the time to stand up. If you've ever thought of joining Dumbledore's army, (laughs) if you've ever heard the call of the Mockingjay. And I thought, yeah, they they haven't learned anything. We're stuck in an an endless carousel of a nightmare that just feels like 2016 all over again. I just saw Pete Buttigieg tweet, this isn't Russia. It feels like we're just going to be trapped in this vortex forever. Well, it's a vortex that's surrounded by things that do change. Elite democratic circles remain the same, comically so, but the world around those circles keeps falling apart or keeps bursting into flames, or the people occupying it become increasingly radicalized to the point where they're marching in the streets, protesting, rioting even. Like, in certain ways, the political culture hasn't changed and has only gotten worse since 2016, but in other ways, it has changed in some very, like, fundamental and, I think, irreversible ways. I don't think that means that Donald Trump won't push through a Supreme Court justice, but I think it means that like something's got to give at some point. Something's building up to something. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We've seen, you know, two different kinds of politicization during the Trump era. We've seen the kind you're describing, you know, which is obviously constructive and something to be very optimistic about. But then we've seen the other kind, which is what allowed Joe Biden to win the Democratic nomination, or Mm -hmm. at least it increasingly seems that way, which is the politicization of a kind of affluent, somewhat conservative-leaning suburban constituency that... In the 2018 midterms, we saw voting greater numbers, and it looks like during the Democratic primaries turned out in a really big way for Biden from South Carolina onwards. And this is where, you know, the sensibility that we're complaining about has really succeeded. You know, this kind of smirking MSNBC strand of liberalism that has really worked on some people. And in a strange way, it actually has kind of mobilized them. (laughs) Uh, It's just mobilized them 
in a way that's very counterproductive and around sensibilities and activities that are ultimately counterproductive and pretty self-defeating. So I don't want to spend much more time uh, talking about the state of politics at the moment because we got a movie this week which uh, is truly some of the most biting commentary, biting satire that says far more through the power of art than uh, Will and I ever could. Sounds and images together, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But I did want to shout out to patron saint of the show, Michael Moore, who went on Rising recently to talk about the state of things in Michigan where, uh, you know, he's warning that Biden's ground game is completely non-existent. And he says um, it's actually worse than Hillary. At least there was a ground game, even though she didn't show up. You know, he went on to say that despite that, there were Hillary offices in some towns. There was some door-to-door stuff going on. You couldn't get a yard sign, but there was at least some visibility. Biden did visit Michigan recently, but uh, more criticized him for... Uh, avoiding what he called black Michigan and only visiting white Michigan. Uh, I'm not sure where Biden visited, but his campaign does seem very interested in, you know, winning the votes of affluent white people. That's kind of its core constituency, or at least the one it's really leaning into. Speaking of counterproductive politics pushed along by uh, places like MSNBC, I don't think you could find a better example than Biden openly touting the endorsement of, you know, the former Republican governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder. I mean, one of the principal architects of the Flint water crisis. This is the kind of thing that uh, the smarmiest strand of liberalism uh, during the Trump era has told us is not only necessary, but is actually noble. We should uh, we should celebrate these kind of alliances. And, um, you know, and I know we've been, you know, lovingly critical of Michael on the show before, but uh, I do just want to note that in this interview on Rising, he was pretty critical of Biden for uh, for embracing that endorsement. So uh, good for him. Well, I was very upset recently that Biden accepted the endorsement of Bernie Sanders, who is a close contact of Joe Rogan. Yeah, I have it on good authority that Bernie Sanders hates women and people of color. So, uh, you know, I could never vote for somebody uh, endorsed by a guy like that. Joe Biden just lost my vote. Welcome. I'm Clarissa Montgomery, and we are streaming live. Take a deep, healing breath and imagine that you're not even on Twitter or Facebook or Xanax. Yes, officer. I know what I did, and I know why that man pressed charges. I knew her. Not well, but we would nod at each other and she always made a point of remembering my name and smiling and saying, hi, Kelly. And I'd say, hi, Ivanka. The smile, it was like she was saying, I'm here, but I'm not. He's wearing jeans and a windbreaker. And the hat, the red hat. You know the one, the MAGA hat in New York City. Two blocks from the public theater and Cooper Union where Lincoln spoke and Larry Kramer. It's like me going to Nebraska, wearing a yarmulke, waving a rainbow flag while reading a book. It's a tired old truism that great art emerges from times of strife. And that truism gets put to the test with this film. (laughs) which is, you know, one of the first (laughs) filmic products of the pandemic. It comes to us from writer Paul Rudnick, a playwright and screenwriter whose work includes The Devil Wears Prada, and director Jay Roach, a returning champion to the podcast. (laughs) He... We recently discussed his work with the Sarah Palin film Game Change. He's also the director of the Austin Powers series. Would have loved to have seen Austin in this one. And it's an anthology film comprised of five monologues by five well-regarded actors, each playing a coastal elite, quote-unquote, 
speaking into a webcam, I think. That's topical. Riffing on the state of their life in Drumpf's America with a, with a goddamn Cheeto in the White House. We'll go through each of the segments, but... You know, I just want to say we we watched Kickassia last week. You can hear that on our Patreon. And when I saw Kickassia, I thought, well, this is this is the worst one we've ever seen. This may be unsurpassable. But I got to say, I would watch Kickassia three times before I watch this one again. <laughs> well, I I have to say, I'm always feeling on this show that I've I've already expended my capital when it comes to saying this is the worst piece of dog shit. But we've we ever mean watched it every single time. Every we say single it. time I say it, I'm being a hundred percent sincere. Because you know something like Kickassia at least gives you more to look at. Like it's it's horrible stuff, but at least there's at least you have something to do while you're watching it. Yeah, watching this movie was like swimming through an ocean of vomit with the anchor of the world's largest cruise ship attached to my ankle. <laughs> it was it was this was so this was so painful. And in addition to the content being painful, it is such a chore to sit through. Everyone I've talked to for the past few months, like every every sort of old acquaintance or friend that I'm catching up with, everyone's told me a version of the same thing. Inevitably, when you're early in a conversation, you're kind of catching up and you say, you know, how's your job? People will always say the same thing, which is, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I really hate sitting through so many Zoom meetings. It's so difficult. So this movie, being a pandemic movie, forces you to sit through what is essentially a 90-minute Zoom call. <laughs> Featuring five of the worst people, five people that if they were your co-workers at your job uh, that made you sit through Zoom calls, you would you would quit. <laughs> and the tone of the film is very similar to the Jon Stewart movie Irresistible, which we talked about uh, in a crossover with the Current Affairs podcast a few weeks ago, which has an incredibly strange tone where it's trying to lean into a kind of faux self-deprecating posture where, you know, the liberal elites are making fun of themselves. They're like, ha ha, look at, look at me swilling my latte uh, with, you know, and carrying around my, uh, my script books for Hamilton uh, in, in my NPR tote bag. It's such an annoying move because it's supposed to, it's supposed to be ass covering. It's supposed to be like, once they get that out of the way, they can just be who they are, which just is the stereotype. It reminds me very much of when Lena Dunham released that awful thing a few days before the, the 2016 election. What was it called? The Sensual Pantsuit Anthem. Oh, who could forget? And then she defended it by saying like, oh, I just thought it'd be really funny to do that, you know, play this character of this out of touch white girl who's uh, shilling for Hillary. And it's like, I'm not sure how many layers of post irony that qualifies for, but it's certainly a number that cancels out any irony that was supposed to be implicit. Well, this is particularly evident in the first and worst segment called <laughs> Lock Her Up. This one stars Bette Midler as an older Manhattanite who early on describes her religion as being the New York Times. And, and she describes, she, she talks about how much she loves Hillary Clinton because she is the New York Times in a pantsuit. And I think the movie thinks that it's being funny when it has her say this because it's so stereotypical of a certain kind of, it's cartoonishly stereotypical of a certain kind of wealthy Manhattanite. But the movie doesn't actually regard these views as embarrassing in any way. It, it, like, it, it's only funny to the extent that it, that it leans into the stereotype, not for the sentiments that the stereotype represents. 
which I think blunts whatever minimal effectiveness this could have had because these people aren't even, they don't even come across as real living, breathing people. They look like cartoonish stereotypes that you're also supposed to like, despite the fact that they're made out of cardboard, you know? It's the worst of both worlds. They're not quite real people, but they're not quite parodies of real people either. So they're these kind of nothing creations that you have to spend 90 minutes with. Uh, Anyway, we meet Bette Midler in a police interrogation room where she has been arrested for getting in a fight with a Trump supporter who she encountered outside of, yes, the New York Public Theater, home of Hamilton, as she says. (laughs) His presence was an unforgivable intrusion at this sanctuary, this safe space, the New York Public Theater. And again, it sounds like heavy-handed satire of a certain kind of Democrat, And to some degree it is, but the movie also likes this person. At the end, she goes into this monologue that is entirely sincere, not satirical at all, about how we we fight. That's what we do. Yeah, towards the end of the rant, she talks about, you know, after doing a very dated uh, defense of Hillary Clinton that feels like it's from January of 2017 or perhaps even November of 2016, she she talks about how, uh, I guess, her husband was in a coma or something. And the first thing he said when he woke up was... uh, she won, right? And then, and then uh, the nurse, who didn't know better, very somberly shook her head, and then uh, her husband just flatlined, which was the only moment uh, in this movie that got a genuine laugh from me, although I think not from, not intentionally on the part of the movie. Because this morning I wake up, and I'm reading the Times, because I love the Times, like it was my child or it was my, 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 my parent. I mean, officer, do you know what the New York Times means to a liberal Jewish woman like me? On the census, when it asks for religion, I don't put Jewish, I put the New York Times. But so the rant culminates uh, in her uh, deciding, well, damn, I'm going to go to the New York Public Theater after, I'm going to commit an act of resistance by going to the, the damn New York Public Theater after stealing this guy's MAGA hat. She becomes a Charles Bronson in Death Wish, you know, a, a vigilante, a, an NPR tote bag wielding vigilante against mega hat wearers in Manhattan. Charles Bronson accepts it's for going to Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> she's recounting, and this is all just a one-sided monologue. This is like a 30-minute monologue delivered with no context except for a little thing in the bottom uh, corner which says her name and the fact that it's January 2020 and she's in an interrogation room and you know the reasons for that are slowly filled in uh, throughout the monologue. Towards the end of the monologue she recounts standing in the New York Public Theater and she says you know and I look around and I realize that I stand for something. Everyone here stands for something. The very thing that he hates and fears. And so she says damn it I'm gonna go to this uh, I'm gonna go to this play and then when she comes out she gets uh, arrested uh, and she's uh, she she finishes by saying to uh, the officer in the interrogation room, if all if doing this is a crime, then then, sir, lock me up. <laughs> Segment two features Canada's own Dan Levy. It's called Super Gay. And he plays a gay actor who may be in line to play cinema's first gay superhero. He's feeling conflicted, though, because the studio wants him to play the character as a flaming stereotype. And from there, he wanders into a digression about Mike Pence and Pence's lamentable history with gay rights. This, to me, was the the weakest segment, just in terms of 
conceptually you mean yeah they're they're all the weakest segment but just conceptually this one didn't work this one uh i guess he's supposed to be in los angeles but it's mostly just him complaining about a job that he wants and it's for this superhero who fights racism sexism and the patriarchy or something it's also not very convincing that the studio if they're making a gay superhero movie would want him to be like this aggressive stereotype either First of all, if a movie studio is making, is going to do a big PR thing about having the first gay superhero, they're not going to make him a stereotype. They're going to make him a, you know, a fairly milquetoast version of a gay man. So I don't think the segment even really kind of works on its own terms. It doesn't ring true. Yeah, this one is really not very interesting. Uh, what did you think of the the third one? Um, I probably found this... I mean, by default, the best one, just because it's the one that I was the least bored in. It's called The Blonde Cloud, and it features Issa Rae, who is the only performer of color. And she plays a youngish political activist from a very wealthy family, so wealthy that her father gets her invited to the White House to meet Mr. Donald Trump. Now, she went to school with Ivanka. Those are the circles she travels in. And through a conversation with Ivanka, she finds out that the first daughter is hoping that they can have a stronger friendship that will repair Ivanka's soiled brand. Create an image for herself as somebody who is a friend of repressed or underrepresented groups. And Issa Rae, the activist, says hell no to that. So, I mean, I said that I liked this segment the best, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure why I like it the best. It's also annoying and doesn't really ring true and doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense even on its own terms this one really leans into the stereotype you know maybe the hardest because throughout it she's drinking rosé yeah yeah that's right and she's in the most palatial looking of of the locations she's in this kind of vast spacious loft apartment she ends by saying uh ivanka thinks she can social distance herself from history this could almost be chelsea clinton if you remove the racial politics from it this one sort of captures the phenomenon of rich liberals who were actually perfectly fine with Ivanka Trump before and then are now willing to kind of object to her, although they will still go to the White House when their rich industrial magnate father or mother gets invited there. The rudest they'll be to Ivanka is saying, you know, um, I, sorry, I have a prior engagement. I can't hang out with you. Yeah, it's funny to me that in a movie that is an attempt to be like a state of the nation in 2020, that this is given to us as an example of a social problem. Somebody who is as rich or even richer than Ivanka Trump being in a slightly uncomfortable situation of having to rebuff her friendship. Yeah, this really is the ultimate we'd be at brunch movie. I feel like this is that sentiment made into a movie. Watching it was like being subjected to 90 straight minutes of those two TikTok libs. You know the one I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do. The, all the screenshots have been going around where it's like they're, they're expressions frozen in a perpetual smirk. That's what every frame of this movie is like. I've got a question for you, Luke. Don't you hate going home for Thanksgiving and sitting around the Thanksgiving table and finding out that all of your relatives are uh, mega hat wearing Republicans. Well, that's the dilemma that faces Sarah Paulson in segment number four called Because I Have to Tell Someone. This is now one of the stock kind of formulas, and you see it recur. Uh, I mean, we'll probably get it next month, right? It's an election year. 
and it's Thanksgiving. We, we have a cycle of this uh, about once a year because uh, almost the entire U.S. media lives in two cities. And, you know, some of them once a year briefly have to, you know, go to one of the so-called flyover states and interact with people who aren't Patagonia Democrats like they are. And let me tell you, folks... It's not fun. Yeah, in this one, Paulson plays a uh, self-help mindfulness guru who, in the middle of one of her little YouTube seminars, suddenly loses the ability to summon that inner peace. She's so worked up about that Cheeto in the White House, and she's so frustrated by her family, but the segment climaxes as it must with her recounting a heart-to-heart conversation with her dyed-in-the-wool Republican father, who was so aghast, so upset at the president's dishonoring of John McCain that he cannot vote for him in 2020. This is one of the things, you know, along with the Hillary Clinton rant and the Bette Midler one that made this feel like, I mean, this is supposed to be ultra-topical, you know, because it's a pandemic movie and it's all taking place over Zoom and it's, you know, came out a few weeks before the election. But this is yet another example of how little things have moved since 2016. Because, I'm sorry, but being mad that Trump slandered the honor of John McCain, that was always extremely sus, but still caring about that now. And also, isn't the lesson of 2016 that nobody's hypothetical Republican dad gives a shit about this? It was one of the first things that Trump did on the campaign trail was to make fun of John McCain. Okay, I lied before because uh, I said this film only uh, got me to laugh once, but the other time I laughed was when she's talking about uh, how her dad uh, was incensed that Donald Trump gave a speech uh, about the Navy uh, on an aircraft carrier called the USS John McCain, but then he had the words USS John McCain covered up. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah, that rules, actually. (laughs) Finally, segment five ends the movie with a whimper. It features Caitlin Dever as a nurse from Wyoming who has come to New York to treat coronavirus patients. And the most notable thing about this segment is she identifies as an independent at the start of the segment, but at the very end of the segment, she is not an independent anymore. Yeah, this one has, I think, the least substance. And it's also, this is partly due to uh, how late in the film it was, but uh, this is where I stopped taking notes. Yeah. Which usually when I look down at my notes... It's a good indicator of of where something has lost me. <laughs> this is where I stopped being able to chant uh, the personal mantra I use to get me through these movies, which is I'm a professional podcaster. I've got to do this. I'm being paid for this. Uh, it, it, it stopped working for me here. There's not a lot to say about this one. Uh, she's a nurse, so I guess that's topical. And uh, this is where the movie kind of lays out its thesis statement, which is, you know, at the end she says... Uh, Uh, Well, I'm sure as heck not going to vote independent this time. Uh, There you have it, folks. Uh, Make sure to make sure to vote. There's a dang Cheeto Mussolini in the White House and uh, we got to get him out of there. I I was disappointed, given who the director is, that we did not get any kind of Austin Powers content in here. Well, you didn't stick around for segment six. Resistance Austin. A camera comes into focus in a familiar tie-dye painted room, and uh, a man addresses the camera and says, This pandemic is totally not my bag, baby. (laughs) Anyways, I think the lesson here is that in spite of the Trump presidency looking increasingly sinister the closer we get to the election... Uh, we seem to be stuck in a cycle of eternal recurrence where absolutely nothing will make the libs get it. And as is held true since uh, 2016, 
it really is going to be up to people other than Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to, ironically enough, safeguard what are supposed to be the checks and balances of the liberal order and defend small d democracy because, uh, yeah, the, the libs certainly aren't going to do it. They just want to be at brunch. You're like Julie Andrews singing The Sound of Music with her arms open wide and never dreaming she'd soon be trafficked by the Catholic Church into becoming an unpaid nanny under a Nazi regime and ultimately marrying an employer twice her age in a scenario that could more rightly be termed hashtag Edelweiss me too, hashtag none of my favorite things, and hashtag Sunyi Von Trapp. <clears throat> we talked earlier about one brand that has risen like a phoenix from the ashes, but there's another beloved brand that is in deep trouble right now. You alerted me this week to the fact that LaserQuest is potentially going out of business. <laughs> I think most of its locations are shuttering. And I was really sad to hear this because... Like you, I spent many weekend afternoons of my childhood eating birthday pizza and then shooting up some people in, in a laser quest location. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about this so that uh, this week's episode wouldn't be entirely politics. It's good to get some lighter fare in, which, you know, as this week's film taught us, is, uh, is the ultimate act of resistance. <laughs> But yeah, LaserQuest, uh, LaserQuest is closing. And, uh, you know, I'm not really one for doing nostalgia because uh, mostly on the show, we're revisiting things that we liked as kids and deciding that they actually suck. Hang on, are any of them still open? Like maybe we could go and play a laser tag game and see if it holds up. <laughs> you want to do social distance laser tag? I mean, uh, apparently in some parts of the United States, uh, I mean, so this is a Canadian franchise. Um, it's based in Mississauga, more than 100 outposts worldwide, apparently. So, so since the majority of our listenership is American, you know, you may not be familiar specifically with the Laser Quest brand, but I mean, I guess they have laser tag everywhere. In Canada, this was sort of the biggest laser tag brand. And, you know, it was a whole immersive experience. They had party rooms. They had a little arcade outside. You know, there's a laser quest in London, Ontario, that I want to say I did my birthday at three or four years in a row. You know, it was up there with uh, Discovery Zone, which had those, those you know, bi pits with big balls in them and trampolines. Those big and... indoor playscape places. Fuck, I love I yeah, those... those places. Those place with like the the big tubes that would uh that, that you would crawl through. You can climb up big nets and you can go down big slides. I will never <laughs> recapture the pure happiness I felt at those places. Yeah, I remember uh, once uh, being in a McDonald's ball pit because you remember when McDonald's had those things and uh yeah too many like too many the... kids would shit in the ball pits and then i think they got rid of them <laughs> they had the they had the the ball pits with the like the tubes uh in them and i remember once finding a crushed ball and putting it in my pocket and taking it home and feeling like it was the sacred object <laughs> and also like that i'd done something very subversive and feeling intermittently very guilty about it but also feeling like i'd really taken it to the man <laughs> I used to love laser tag though because while well, laser quest felt like this otherworldly space it would often be at a strip mall or something it would just be like a simple storefront on the outside but the laser tag space where you would put on your gear and they would have dry ice smoke around and all the walls would be painted black with neon and it would be like a maze it was hard to reconcile as a child that this inexplicable otherworldly space was the same as that shitty storefront in the strip mall that we'd entered it was like going into wonderland 
I'm not sure it would have the same impact on me if I went again. I don't think it's possible to feel that way once you've become an adult. I think that's lost forever. Just that kind of sheer wonder at walking into, you know, a space with weird lights and stuff and thinking that, you know, you've entered another dimension. That's certainly how it felt to me. I doubt my parents had quite the same experience because they had to chaperone along with some other, uh, some parents of my friends who were, I suspect, you know, kind of, a press gang unwillingly conscripted into being chaperones at my various birthday parties there. I once had an incredibly disastrous birthday party. I don't think I'm I'm conflating too. I think this all happened in the same year where one of my, uh, should we say, less well-behaved friends uh, jumped up on the table in the party room and pulled his pants down because he was feeling, I guess, pretty loose. I must have been, I don't know, seven <laughs> years old or something. I think he might have stepped on the cake you know, we went in and we had a couple games in the in the laser tag thing. And then, you know, we traveled to London, Ontario, which was 45 minutes away from where I lived. You know, this was kind of the the big the big metropolis, although it's not actually a, a big city at all. Uh, if you grew up in southwestern Ontario, you know, it's like it's like growing up somewhere in the Midwest, you know, somewhere rural in the Midwest. And then, you you know, you drive to a town of, you know, 70,000 people and you're like, wow, so this is what a city's like. That's what that's what visiting London, Ontario was to me as a kid which added to the sort of cosmic feeling I got from going to Laser Quest. You know, it was like it was like visiting Oz. But anyway, uh, after this pretty disastrous birthday party, um, we're all getting in our convoy to leave. We're driving out of town. There's like three or four, you know, cars, like someone has a van. We're driving out of town. And I see the van in front of me pull over. We're, we're outside of the city limits. And so everyone kind of notices the whole convoy pulls over. We realize that the parental headcounts that have been conducted uh, had had failed us to the tune of one soul who was left behind at the laser quest, whose parents are not with the convoy. So everybody feverishly drives back to the laser quest trying to find this kid. And it was also it was like the quietest of my friends. So the one that was easily missed, <laughs> he was left behind there for probably almost two hours. For me as a kid, I actually wasn't that bothered by it. But looking back, my parents were terrified. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if anything, they'll, they'll probably be happy to uh, uh, hear that Laser Quest is closing. RIP to a real one. But so we promised people as kind of the chaser for this week's episode that you'd tell your Al Goldstein story. And I have to say, of your many adventures, this is maybe my favorite one because it centers such an unlikely person under such unusual circumstances. It's it's always had a, a kind of tender resonance for me that it really shouldn't have given who's at the center of the story. So uh, you were writing a piece about Al Goldstein in what, 20, was this 2014? It was, uh, it was 2013. I was going to New York to do some research for this. I was going to look at some old screw magazines on on microfilm at the New York Public Library, talk to a few people who knew him, and I had got in touch with Goldstein's, I guess, handler or friend or representative at the time. Uh, it was it was a woman who was a performer. She was a friend of Penn Jillette's, actually. And Penn Jillette, I guess she had been having coffee with her at one point and said to her, listen, my friend Al is very lonely. If you could come hang out with him, you know, once a week, you'd be doing him a kindness. And she ended up, I guess, having having a friendship with this abject old man who had gone from having a fortune of $11 million to being literally homeless on the street until Gillette rescued him. I emailed her and she said, well, Al's not much for conversation anymore, but he likes company. So if you want to come visit him in the hospital, I'm sure you'd be appreciated. 
So I went out to Brooklyn in Crown Heights to visit him in the hospital where he was. And the thing that I think makes this story unique is that I am one of the last people to see Al Goldstein alive. Right, because he he died a few days later. Um, and also, you know, in the act went from the relative obscurity that he'd fallen into to, was it the cover of... He was, when he died, his obituary was on the cover of the New York Times which was an incredible cognitive dissonance. I saw this this man, what was left of him, in his hospital bed. He had essentially, I mean, I mean, it's not funny. He had essentially made the decision that he was going to give up. So it was clear that he was not long for this world. And, you know, uh, doctors would come, nurses would come. They, they had no idea who he was. But then a few days later, he was on the cover of the New York Times. You know, every news organization had a story about this very forgotten figure. It felt like a lesson in the fickleness of fame and how fame and obscurity could really exist. They can coexist. So it was sad to see this man, abject though he was, in this position. But I remember... His friend, his handler, uh, showed me a cell phone video of him a few a few weeks before. I, I take it that his failure of health was quite rapid, but she showed me a video of him from a few months earlier, and it was a, a shot of him sitting on the bed in his medical gown, and you hear her voice off screen say, so Al, uh, what was it you said uh, you, you, you would have wanted from me if you were younger? And upon being asked that question, he turned into Al Goldstein. So he he said a bunch of really vulgar shit. Yes, which was also in its own way very powerful to witness in that context. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, my co-host Will Sloan, one of the last people to see Screw Magazine's Al Goldstein alive. Hey, hey, guys, it's MC Pantsu. Oh, yeah, my hobby yeah. is rap music, but my passion, defending the nation's baddest grandmother. I'm talking Hillary, Rodham, Clinton. I get upset when people say that Hillary needs to smile. She's the strongest fucking person, couldn't even walk a mile. And the heels of this woman had to fight her whole life, defending everything she does to the left and to the right. She's been a lawyer, first lady, senator, plus a mom. Fights for justice since the age of 15. Man, come on! And she did it in a man's world. Shatters last feeling still. All these little bitches will assume she's catching feelings. Fuck that, my girl's a writer. Progressive freedom fighter going up against a dude who's a climate change denier she worked harder than her man did still saw her grandkid and people have the nerve to ask her what her plan is the plan is to win against hatred and slurs break it down in three words i'm with her i can't believe she's in the race with this guy let's get out and vote or everybody might pantsuit to reveal a more sensual pantsuit because that's what you do for the candidate you love not really sure i understand the logic here the rap is trash and why are you wearing hillary's lingerie you've got to show your whole body everything that you have for the candidate you love i'm not sure how appropriating Iggy azalea's culture is gonna help hillary win though dance with me cynthia take your pantsuit off and show us your sensual pantsuit cynthia no i'm good i wonder if i'm actually hurting her chances of winning don't forget to vote November 8th. My girl's a